You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. The focal passage today is found in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Um, if anyone needs a Bible, you can check, check them out at the Connect desk and they'll make sure to get you one. Read along with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. You can now have a seat, and the kids can be dismissed to their class. Thanks, babe. Morning, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And then we're going to continue on in Colossians, as was just read. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump in this morning. God, thanks for the opportunity to hear your word. Um, God, I pray that this morning you might give us grace to know you more, give us a love for your word, and God, I pray that we might know you more fully as a result of this passage today. God, please let our hearts just be receptive I pray that that anything I say would only be helpful in building up your church and and these people here this morning. So God, we give this time to you. Thanks for the music that prepared our hearts and pointed us to you. And God, I pray that this would just be a continuation of all that's going on in this gathering today to make much of you. God, we love you and we pray this in your good name. Amen. According to Forbes, a fisherman in 2006 was motoring his boat around Palawan Islands in the Philippines. He was on one of his daily trips Um, when he was caught in a storm and the anchor of his boat got stuck on a giant clam. And as he swam down into the water to unloose the anchor from the clam, he was surprised to find a large pearl inside of the clam. The pearl was one foot by 2.2 feet and weighed 75 pounds. This man brought the pearl home and kept it under his bed like a good luck charm for 10 years. In 2016, his house burned down, so it might not have been such a good luck charm. But uh, the pearl survived, and so he left the pearl with his aunt for safekeeping. She worked as a tourism officer, and she convinced him to let her put the pearl on display and certify its authenticity. The pearl was estimated to be, get this, over $100 million. 
This is according to Forbes. This was the pearl of pearls. It was the largest, most expensive, one-of-a-kind pearl, but this man did not know the value of what he had and left it under his bed for 10 years, looking for something else, fishing to sustain him. And today we're going to look at how the Corinthian church, or the Colossian church, did something very similar to what this man did. Like this man we just talked about, the church didn't know or understand the infinite value and incomparable worth of Jesus, their Savior. They had originally put their faith in him for salvation and did have Jesus, but because of their limited partial view of him, they thought they needed something in addition to Jesus to sustain them and to help them on their spiritual walk and in their spiritual lives. And today we're going to look at how Paul addresses this church in light of this problem, and we're going to see how he talks to them and how he encourages them. So if you've been here with us for a while or not, Pastor Scott set up last week this new um, message series in Colossians. We're in Colossians, and it's above all. And Colossians is a letter that Paul wrote to a young church that he had never met before. And in this letter, Paul desires to make known Jesus more fully to, in all that he is. I think this church had a sliver of who he is. They were Christians, right? They put their faith in him, but they had a sliver of, of the knowledge of who he was. They might have known about his love, but maybe didn't know about all the other parts of Jesus. And so Paul's goal is to make Jesus more fully known. Paul's hope is that the church would see that Jesus is far better than anything else. And in seeing this, remain steadfast to Jesus and the gospel they originally put their faith in. And so today we're going to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 23, which my wife just read. And we're going to look at why Jesus's preeminence is so important to us remaining steadfast in our faith. And here's why this text matters today. If we don't believe, or if we're not even aware of, of Jesus's preeminence and that he is above all things, um, we're going to probably have doubts about who our God is and if he's able to sustain us, right? If God is not sovereign or if we don't know that he is, then how, pow how powerful is he? Is my salvation really secure in him? And what can or can't he do if he is not sovereign over everything? And is this someone I actually want to put my faith in? And if we don't know or believe that Jesus is above all things— then there may be a real danger for us to think like the Colossian church this morning that we need something, um, Jesus and something, to kind of sustain us on our spiritual walk. And so, uh, you know, maybe Jesus has a part to play in our salvation, but maybe we need a, a ritual or a behavior of our own or something else, a good luck charm like this guy with the pearl to kind of sustain us in our walk. And so the question for each of us today is this. This is what I want you to think about through this message. What is going to keep us steadfast to Jesus in the future? We think of all the things that are going on in this world, and it seems maybe more unstable by the day, and there's more out there in culture, and there's more theories of this and that, and what will keep us steadfast to Jesus in the future? And the main idea of the message today is this, and this will be on the screens. We will remain steadfast because our preeminent Jesus remains steadfast to us. We will remain steadfast because our preeminent Jesus remains steadfast to us. Um, I'm going to use some words kind of in a similar way. There's, you'll hear preeminence. You'll hear uh, maybe um, sovereign or above all, and those have a similar meaning. Where preeminence is like he is far above everything else. He is above all, which is our sermon series. Sovereign has the same idea that he is above everything, in control of everything. And so I'm going to kind of use those words throughout the thing, and they, they mean generally the same thing. 
Chapter one starts with a greeting that Pastor Scott talked about last week. Paul greets the church. He prays over them and encourages them. And then Paul busts out a poem on the preeminence of Jesus. And if you're like me, I was reading through this and I'm like, what doesn't Paul do? It kind of just makes you a little sick. And I have a high respect for Paul. I'm not knocking Paul, but like he is probably the best evangelist ever, right? He started many churches. He wrote much of the New Testament and it just, he suffers well. He's in prison right now, writing a letter, selflessly doing all these things. And then if that's not enough, he just writes this amazing poem. And it just kind of was like, wow, that's, that's just great for Paul. You know, great, good job. It's A plus for you, buddy. And it, it's, it's really good, too. Like, I'm not knocking Paul. He's great, and he does a good job in this poem. And it's one of the best um, sections of Scripture that highlights the fullness and the glory and the preeminence of God. And so let's, let's read it again. Um, it was read for us, but I just want to kind of talk about three verses. I'm going to read 15 through 17, and this will be um, point number one. Our point number one is Jesus is sovereign over creation. And we'll kind of see that in 15, 16, and 17. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And I'll stop there. So Paul writes about first who Jesus is, and he starts with this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And you think about this church that, that came around after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And again, they knew some stuff about him, but this is what Paul starts with. He starts with, hey, this is who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. And here's another way to say it. Jesus is the visible image of our invisible God. How would this church and how do we know what our God looks like? We look to the visible life of Jesus to know what that looks, to fill out that picture for us. Jesus, who is the fullness of God, comes to earth. He puts on flesh and he lives his life for 33-ish years so we might be able to see the visible picture of who the Father is. Jesus, um, and then Paul goes on to say, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And now this doesn't mean that he is born or created. It's kind of just maybe some slightly weird language there. Um, what this does mean, and we know this from verse 16, verse 16 says that for by him, Jesus, all things were created. And so again, we, we're not uh, you know, flustered like, oh, is Jesus created or not? He is not created. What this does mean, this first, firstborn term means that he, it's a position. And we know this because um, verses like Psalms 89, 27 tell us that. And this is the father talking about Jesus. This is Psalms 89, 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The Father will one day elevate Jesus to that position. And in Bible times, the firstborn would be given like the rights to the family. He would be given maybe more of the wealth and he can be made the leader of it after the father passes away. And if your father was a king in biblical times, the firstborn would be the heir. He would inherit the right to reign. And so we know from this term that firstborn is nothing else more than a position that Jesus is elevated to. And then Paul writes about what Jesus did. He talks about who he is, that he is the visible image of God and that he's the firstborn of all creation. And then Paul writes, it says, for by him, all things were created. The Bible doesn't mess around in declaring who Jesus is or, or what he did. Jesus isn't just one of like five categories of how maybe things started. It's not from a big bang or from billions of years. No, Jesus created all things. And in case we don't get what all things is, Paul then kind of gives us a description in this passage to kind of highlight and fill out our picture of all that Jesus is over and how preeminent he is. 
He created all things in heaven and on earth. And that's, that's fairly big categories, right? But what that means is, you know, that's, that's the stars, that's the galaxy, that's, that's us. Jesus simply spoke, and all that is came into existence. He created all things visible and invisible. This is the earthly realm that we can see, that's people and plants and things like that. And then that's what we can't see as well but know exists. That's the spiritual realm. That might be angels, demons, those types of things. He created thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. That's that's kingdoms, leaders, and the powers they have. All things were created through Jesus and for him. All of this was created by Jesus and they're for him. They one day will be all of his. And if that weren't amazing enough, Paul says, for by him, all things hold together as well. This, this, this what I'm gonna talk about today is slightly more the- theologically, I'm just gonna say a lot of things. Like any one of these statements could probably be a whole message. I'm just highlighting these big categories of who Jesus is. But he not only you know, made all things, but he sustains all things. The ESV study Bible says this about this. Jesus continually sustains his creation, preventing it from falling into chaos or disintegration. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And lastly, a quote from a, from a commentary I read, Jesus holds the world all history and our lives in his hands and actively keeps them ticking by the millisecond. And I don't think like that often about, hey, I'm glad Jesus is sustaining us right now in this room. As you're living, breathing, thinking, it's a, it's a miraculous thing that God does second by second. Nothing happens without his permission, from a solar flare to a cell moving in a body, from water trickling in an underground cave to a, a play in a, on a football game. He's intimately aware of all that is going on in the world and at any given second, in any given continent, he's sustaining all that is going on. No one except Jesus has this type of preeminent power. Jesus, the invisible image of God, created all that exists and sustains all that exists at all times. Church, understanding the otherness of this Jesus will bring proper perspective to our lives. I think that'll be on the screen as well. It's kind of the main idea for point number one, understanding the otherness of Jesus, that he is so unlike us, so far above anything we can ever imagine, brings proper perspective to life. And the sooner we grasp that Jesus is so much better than anything else, the less worried we will be about the problems of life, life. the less worried we will be about the distractions of life, about the things that are happening tomorrow. Jesus is sovereign over all things at all times for all times, and this brings perspective. No army can overthrow him. No disease can weaken him. No disaster can surprise him. No spiritual force can ever dethrone him. It's Michael Jordan playing basketball against a a six-month-old that can't even walk. It's the Bengals versus the Steelers. Are they even a team anymore? I, I don't think so. And yet so often we live like Jesus is less than who the Bible says he is. And here's our problem with this. I I believe this is true for myself and maybe this is true for you. The more we fixate on the problems of our life, the smaller Jesus becomes. The more we fixate on the thing tomorrow that's, that's real, right? That we have real problems, real hardships, real things with relationships and work and kids and all that stuff. The more we fixate on those things, the smaller though Jesus becomes, the less we see his preeminence over everything. 
when we fixate on our problems, we tend to obsess more about our lack of preeminence than about the preeminence that he has. And this leads us to feeling overwhelmed and discouraged. Flat tires, broken relationships, church splits, and health problems all seem to have more impact on our days than all that we just stated about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But I want to point us back to this. We get to remember the otherness of Jesus. He's not like us. He's not bogged down by all those things, although he cares about them. This is Paul's hope for the Colossian church, and this is our hope as well this morning. Remembering all that Jesus is in perspective to our problems is the key to living and sustaining in him each day. Jesus is actively right now sustaining you. He's actively right now sustaining me. He is alive and ruling and reigning in heaven and on earth, and he's seated on a throne in peace. He's not flustered by stuff. He doesn't get caught up or surprised by something that we do or something that happens out in the world. He's, he's created you and knows you better than anyone else. Remembering the preeminence of Jesus keeps us from thinking we need new knowledge or a charm or the pearl like this guy thought he needed for just good luck to sustain him and kind of be an extra thing. Um, when I was younger, um, maybe some of you know this song. It's, it's an old hymn. Um, I used to, you know, gather in a pew and, and sit in a dark church and we used to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And like, that's a great song, but when I was like eight and nine singing it, um, it just didn't do it for me. I'm just being genuine, right? It's like, you know, slow and piano-y driven. No offense, Liz, you do a great job with that. It's all good. And it was just, it it's not, doesn't build, you know, it doesn't have all this stuff. But I was thinking about it this week when I was preparing for this message, and I'm gonna read the chorus to you, and it, it is beautiful, and it kind of sums up this point. The chorus of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes, is this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's the truth, isn't it? Maybe that sounds boring as we sing it, but that, that truth will sustain us in, in the things that we go through. That the more we look to Jesus and his otherness, the, the, the fact that he is above all and, and nothing compares remotely to him, I think the, the things of the earth will fade away. They will, they will discourage us less. They will distract us less. They will bring us down less. Turning your eyes to Jesus and seeing the otherness of him gives us the perspective we need to know that there is no one better to turn to than him. And so the question for us this morning, are there parts of our life in which we feel overwhelmed or defeated or helpless? And I have to think that there are times when all of us feel that way, right? There are things that are so big that are above us, that are outside of our power, that, that we probably feel this way to some degree. And I would encourage you this morning to identify those parts and consider if you are focused more on the problems in front of you than the one who is over those problems. Oftentimes there's no quick fix for the things that, that are discouraging and overwhelming. But understanding that Jesus is bigger than the problem is the first step, is step number one. He is able to help you remain steadfast in him whatever situation you find yourselves in this morning. Jesus is sovereign over creation. This takes us to point number two. If this were it, it would be amazing and, and kind of almost too overwhelming, but Paul doesn't stop here in highlighting Jesus and his preeminence over all things. And point number two is this. Jesus is sovereign over new creation. Point number one was Jesus is sovereign over creation, 
Point number two, Jesus is sovereign over new creation. So let's read the second part of Paul's poem. It's uh, Colossians 1, 18 through 20. And I'll read that for us. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's our word this morning. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul tells us, tells the church that Jesus is the head of the church. He kind of moves to spiritual things now. He uses this analogy to show us how absolutely vital Jesus is to the life of the church, right? Just as our heads are absolutely vital to our life and us living, so Jesus is absolutely vital to the church's existence. You can lose a lot of appendages. We can lose fingers and arms and feet, and we don't prefer that, but we could get by with some of those things, but we can't get by without our head. Jesus establishes the church. He sustains the church, and without Jesus, there is absolutely no church. And that's why it's all about Jesus. This is why we do our best to sing songs that, that point to him. This is why we pray to him. And this is why we do our best to make sure every message that is preached is focused to highlight no one else other than Jesus. It's really easy to fall into a trap for me, for, for maybe you, that, that maybe financial health of a church or for your family or leadership or location or any of these things that, that do matter are more important. But what Jesus wants us to know is that all these things pale in comparison to us recognizing that he is over everything, that he is the head of the church. It is him that sustains it no matter what attacks the church or what comes against it. He is the head of the church. And Paul tells us next that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, Jesus, if you've read maybe most of the Bible, is not the first person to come back to life. You know, we know from like Lazarus that, that he was raised from the dead. We know other people have risen from the dead. But the, the distinction here is that Jesus was the first person to come back to life to never die again. All these people, Lazarus passed away again. Other people that came back to life passed away again. Jesus is the first person to never die again. This proves his sovereignty over all of creation and all of new creation. And this proves his sovereignty over Satan, sin, and death. This proves that he is preeminent over those powers as well. Jesus being the firstborn from the dead gives us hope as well that we too will do what he did someday. He set the tone. He set the example for us to, to know that this can happen for us as well. And lastly, in this section, Paul says that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. This is a full endorsement and affirmation from God the Father about Jesus. Jesus isn't just a fraction of God the Father. He's not just kind of like a mere image of, and like a hologram, and God the Father's doing all the things. Jesus is the fullness. He is fully God. All that God the Father is dwells in Jesus, and Jesus is fully God, perfectly representing God with all the powers of God. And that's why he's different from any idol, right? There, you might think of it like a lowercase idol that, that someone may have or worship or whatever like that, and that idol literally has no power. It might be a picture of who they think their God is, but it doesn't have the fullness that Jesus has. We know those things aren't real and can't do anything. Jesus comes in all the fullness of God, having the power of God, perfectly representing God. Church, Jesus is sovereign 
over all of redemption. That's what this kind of point number two is. We see that you know, he's the head of the church. We see that he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's over Satan and sin and death, and he's the fullness of God that comes to earth. And so that's why we can trust him to be sovereign over our redemption as well. He's preeminent over it. And there are two points to this section. And so kind of part A to point number two is this. Jesus is over the process of redemption. Because Jesus is over all creation, because he's the head of the church, because he's the firstborn from the dead, and because of all the fullness of God dwells in him, he is perfectly capable of redeeming us and providing us all that we need for our spiritual walk. He's perfectly capable to sustain us and to, to never leave us and to hold us to himself. Jesus leaves us no need to look to anything else like the Colossian church did or like this man with the pearl did. There's no need because he provides everything perfectly. There's no need to look to a good luck charm. There's no need to try a ritual or to believe that if we never change our shirt when a football team plays, that that has any power over anything, right? That has no bearing on anything. He is to redemption as an all-you-can-eat buffet to a hungry person, right? He's more than enough. He is to redemption as an all-inclusive resort to someone who is stressed and tired. And he is to redemption as the Mayo Clinic is to a person with a runny nose, the person doesn't need the Mayo Clinic, but Jesus is like that where it's just over and above. He, he just has so much more to offer than we could ever even need or desire. Jesus is more than enough and removes any reason to look to anything else or to think that we need anything else. And he's not only sovereign over the process of redemption, but Jesus also is the process of redemption. Verse 20 kind of shows us this and I'll read it one more time. Verse 20 says this, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Church, Jesus is the means by which we are made right with God. And it's baffling if you think about it, that a God who is over all things, that is preeminent in all of his power and glory and might, would come to the earth to die by the creation he made. That, that this king would give up his power in a sense and push that aside for a brief time to become literally human and to not exercise all the power that he had to be crushed by the creation he made. It doesn't make any sense and that's why it's so amazing. It's better than any movie twist or plot twist. It's better than any love story that a God outside of the time and space would enter into creation that he was sovereign over and be destroyed by it. You say, why is that? That's so he might be reunited with us. Point number three kind of talks about this, but that's why he needed to do this because of us. There is now a way for creation to be made new and right with God because of Jesus and him being over the process of redemption and him being the process of redemption. And as I was thinking of just what application could look like, because this is more theological in nature, I was like, what can we tie this to? What can we present to myself and us this morning that would help us like tomorrow to think about how to apply some of these things. Um, and this is what I believe God kind of pointed me to. There's a difference between knowing about God and experiencing God, right? We can know all of these facts. We can believe in our heads that he is above all things. We can believe that he is more powerful than any force out there. We can believe that he is whatever. But if we don't experience God, that's, that's not the same thing. We are going to live kind of not knowing the fullness of who he is. It's one, way, it's one thing to know about a luxury car. It's another thing to sit in one, 
to smell it, to smell the, the leather maybe, to, to drive it, to feel the power that it has. And it's the same way um, to, to knowing about Jesus as well. So my question for us in point number two is, are you experiencing him? Or maybe another way to say it is, are you beholding Jesus this morning? I believe that the more we sit with God and spend time with him, think on him and listen to him, that we will be deeply satisfied by him and that any desire to believe we need anything else will fade away. The more we just enjoy God, and not just, not just knowing a fact, but resting, being quiet before him, thinking on who he is and just remembering these things, I think that will be the thing that really sustains us. God is enough, Jesus is enough, and the more we take time to behold him, the more likely we will be to embrace him and to submit to him as the one who is over new creation and redemption. Jesus is over, he is sovereign over new creation. Point number one dealt with Jesus being over creation. Point number two is over, Jesus being over new creation. And point number three is, is this, Jesus is sovereign over you and over me. We're gonna read this last section in just a second. The Paul ends our focal passage by directly speaking to the Colossian church. He's talked about who Jesus is. This, is. this is who our God is. This is what he did. This is how he sustains everything. This is why he's over the church. This is all of the power that he has. And this is why he's the head of this and the firstborn from the dead. And then Paul focuses in on people, on you and on me, on this church. And he starts by reminding them of who they are. We've talked about who God is and we get to zero in on us, on who they are. He says, you were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Alienated is to, to cause to be withdrawn or isolated. Hostile is, is antagonistic, unfriendly, opposed. And doing evil deeds, this is like sin. This is being in rebellion against who God is and what he would have us to do. This is no bueno. This is no good at all. We were not in a good position because of these actions that this church had done and because of what we have done. This is the opposite of how Jesus set up creation in the beginning, and the Colossian church is probably hearing this and maybe remembering who they were apart from Christ, and it's probably caused them to just remember some bad things, right? Man, like, I was this way, or I thought like this, or I hurt this person in this way, or, or did whatever. But thankfully, that's not um, where Paul ends, and we get to look at what he says next to them. Paul then reminds them of what Jesus has done, just done for them, because they are a new church, and he has just saved many of them. Paul says, he has now, Jesus has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death on the cross. Why? In order to present you, he says, holy and blameless and above reproach. Holy is to be, to be set apart. By God's grace, when he saves us, he, he lets us be holy, not because we never sin again, but because um, he takes all of our sin, he suffers for it, he dies for it. And when the Father looks at us, he looks at the work of Jesus on our behalf, and we are seen by the Father as holy. We're also blameless. That's innocent of wrongdoing. We are no more um, responsible for our sin. There's no more punishment waiting for us because Jesus took that. He was the one that took all that on himself and, and did that. And we will be, lastly, above reproach. That's such that no criticism can be made of us. When God the Father looks at us, he can't go, up. Oh, but that thing, oh, remember this thing, that there's nothing like that at all. This is the work Jesus does in those he, 
he redeems. This is the work that he does in you and in me when we put our faith in him. And Paul finishes by saying, all of this will happen if you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Basically what Paul's saying in summary is don't chase after new knowledge or believe that something in addition to Jesus is necessary. Just cling to Jesus. Remember him. He's enough. Embrace the gospel that you started with, that saved you initially, and you'll be fine. Church, Jesus is sovereign over our past, over our present, and over our future. I love that this focal passage takes us to the loftiness of who Jesus is, being over all creation and redemption, and then focuses very personally on our past, on our present, and on our future. And look, he does know our past, right? It's easy to think that like, maybe God is not aware of stuff that we've done, things that we've thought, places we've been, or, or, or what we're even capable of doing. But he's aware of that. We, like the Colossians, are not mostly good. And we're not even neutral, where it's, it's kind of like a 50-50. Before Christ, we were what Paul talked about. We were evil to the core and broken beyond despair, repair. We were also in despair. Um, we wanted nothing to do with God, living as if we just didn't care. We were the opposite of steadfast, being prone to wander, as, as a song we sing often. And we were unknowingly headed towards a permanent separation from God into, into eternal punishment. But verse 22 says this, he has now reconciled. And that's our hope this morning. If you are in Christ, you are presently reconciled with God. He is over there. You personally are reconciled with God if you are in Christ. There's nothing more to do. You can't be anything else. You can't be loved more or forgiven more. You are fully reconciled back to the Father. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 say this, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, you and me, alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus looks at us in our repulsive, hostile state and miraculously intervenes. He reconciles us to himself through his life, death, and resurrection. He changes us to the core of who we are, and he puts in us new desires to want to then live in a way that honors him, to want to remain steadfast to him, to want to cling to all that he is. He does this in order to present us to the Father blameless. All, that, all of this will happen in the future, Paul says, if we continue in the faith. Paul urges us to remain true to the faith that we first believed in ourselves, right? Just as the Colossian church put their faith in him to begin with, so he says to us, remember God. You don't need something else. Remember what you started with. He says, don't swerve to superstition and new spiritual knowledge. Don't build out your theology from crazy YouTube preachers. Don't be distracted by other people that may be going astray themselves. Don't think that you need Jesus and something to continue on. Jesus and nothing is more than enough to remain steadfast to God. That, that's our hope. Jesus and nothing is more than enough to remain steadfast to God. So the encouragement from point three is to spend time in his word, right? Like how do we sit with God and how do we enjoy him? How do we behold him? We spend time in his word. Enjoy Christian community, right? Gather with the church, hang out in community groups, hang out with people that love Jesus the same way. Gather with the church on Sundays, and these things will help us to remain steadfast in our faith. 
Hypothetically, if one of us was relying on something in addition to Jesus for spiritual help, what would we do about it? Because that's very possible, right? I say hypothetically because I do this sometimes, and maybe you do this as well. If one of us was relying on something in addition to Jesus for spiritual help, what would we do about it? Say, say you're thinking right now, man, this, there is this thing that I cling to more than Jesus or put. Maybe it's a confidence in financial security, or maybe it's a confidence in a relationship. Maybe, it's, maybe it is a, a trinket or a good luck charm. Well, first, we might observe our day and try to identify those things, behaviors, whatever. And if something does come to mind, I would encourage me and you to ask this type of question. What does this thing offer that Jesus hasn't already provided? What does this thing I'm trusting in offer me that Jesus hasn't already provided, that he's not over, that he is not more capable of helping us with? Or how is this thing better than all that Jesus is? And I hope that that might bring us the perspective that we need to then again cling to the Lord, right? Ask those questions, identify those things, sit there now and say, is there anything that I'm giving myself to that I anchor myself in more than in the steadfastness of Jesus? And, and ask how this thing satisfies me more. Is it able to offer me more than all that Jesus can? And in thinking through that, I encourage you to read this focal passage again and again. Remind yourself of truth, involve a friend maybe, and remember this, that Jesus their preeminent one over creation, new creation, and us will give us all that we need to remain steadfast in him. Jesus is sovereign over you and me. And in conclusion this morning, I asked a question at the beginning of the message. It was this, that what, what are you going to keep or what is going to keep you steadfast for the future? What are you trusting in? Do you, do you have fear that, man, maybe there's something out there that will distract me, that will cause me to doubt my faith enough or doubt my confidence in Jesus that I will run rogue or, or go astray? And, and to the answer to this question, we probably all know the right answer, right? It's, it's Jesus, right? Of course. But like, practically, what is going to hold us fast? Is he really enough? Is he really worth trusting when, when crap hits the fan, when temptation comes, when a new theory or concept of God surfaces in culture, what is gonna hold us to him? What is your hope in to remain steadfast this morning? Is it in your effort to just avoid cultural things in general? We kind of hunker down and we avoid Twitter or YouTube or whatever those things are. Is it just kind of um, you know, hiding from all of that? Is in relying on your community group to keep you accountable. These people will do it, right? The, I may I not be able to, but I, my trust is in this group of friends that they will hold me fast. Or is in just pushing aside any doubts and questions and saying, I'm not gonna think on those things and just trying to kind of muscle up. What is your hope in for remaining steadfast this morning? Paul tells us that in order to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach, we need to remain steadfast. And it kind of sounds like on a, casual read that, that Paul's saying, your salvation is on you. Your remaining steadfast is on you, right? Your salvation is secure if you don't mess it up, or your, your salvation is secure if you are able to, to hang in there, which would instantly give me like a lot of heartburn and make me have to drink a lot of milk, because that's what I do when my stomach goes crazy, I, uh, I gulp down some milk, maybe do the same. But this is not what he's saying and, and not what is consistent with the rest of Scripture. We do need to remain steadfast in the gospel, but our hope for this is not anchored in our own efforts. We don't have the power. We are not preeminent. We are not sovereign over ourselves, let alone anything else. Our hope is anchored in Jesus, who is steadfast 
and is sovereign over our steadfastness. That's our hope this morning. Our hope is not in our ability to say, I will read my Bible enough, or I will pray more, or I will enjoy God and experience him and behold him more. We're not gonna be able to do it. We will have doubts about who Jesus is, and it's fine to have doubts, but what we get to cling to this morning is that Jesus is the one that will hold us. He is the one that will guarantee that we will remain steadfast in the future when cultural things arise, when, when maybe theories or stuff come of who God is and what he's like. He will hold us fast. If we are in Christ, we will remain steadfast because he is preeminent. We don't have to fear our inability or lack of effort because in Christ, he will help us believe and know that he is enough. And Paul says this in Philippians 1.6, I am persuaded of this, that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He's doing a work in you right now. As much as he holds all things together and sustaining everything, he's also working in each of us to, to know him more to enjoy him more, to bring us to being above reproach and to bring us to being holy and set apart. Jude one twenty four says this as well. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his, holy, or of his glory with great joy. That's Jesus again. He is able to do that and he will do that for those who are in Christ. If we are in Christ, he will we will remain steadfast because he remains steadfast to us. Praise God, he remains true to us when we reduce him and his infinite worth to like a good luck charm, stashed under our bed, like the man the pearl at the beginning of our story, right? When we do that, when we reduce God and we don't remember the fullness of him, he is faithful. Praise God, he holds on to us when we think that we need something in addition to him. And praise God, he remains steadfast to us when we wander away, even in doubt for a while. Understanding Jesus's preeminence in creation, new creation, and with us means that we have nothing to fear for the future. We don't have to worry if we will remain steadfast because we know that he will keep us steadfast. So place your past, your present, and your future in the all-powerful hands of God, who is more than able to keep you. And ask God for the desire to enjoy him, behold him, and see him in all that he is, for the fullness of all that he is. We can confidently place our faith in the Lord's hands, and though it may be tested, we may, and we may fail at times, he is able and will hold us steadfast until the end. We will remain steadfast because our preeminent Jesus remains steadfast to us. And, and this might seem maybe it's like a basic concept that he will hold us steadfast, that God is preeminent, but we will be tested, right? Life will overwhelm us at some point. There will be a doubt. And I want you to know that when those things come, we get to remember these truths this morning. Maybe, maybe today life is great, right? Maybe today you're soaring on cloud nine and you're healthy and things are great and, and God feels good. But what happens when you've been praying for six months about something and there's no answer yet? Is he enough then? What's gonna keep us steadfast? And that's my hope this morning that we remember these maybe basic truths when those real problems come around. So it's time for you to respond. You can respond in a couple different ways. There are some questions on the screen which you can look at and think through. My wife and I will be back there to pray with you if anything comes to mind as you're sitting here, if God brings something to mind. Maybe it's something that you are trusting him over him or maybe it's a doubt that you're thinking through. We would love to talk with you about it. We'll be by the red tree. 
There'll be um, some other prayer team members kind of back by that red tree, and there's a prayer bench over here for you to pray with if you want to. You're also to pray, welcome to pray right in your seats as well. You can just sit there. We invite you just to pause and maybe just to listen to God. Maybe you haven't beheld him in a while. Maybe you haven't experienced him in a long time. And maybe these moments in your seats is an opportunity just to experience him and to sit and to listen to what God might have to say this morning. We're also gonna take communion. Right here we have juice and we have crackers. The juice represents the blood that, was Jesus, that Jesus shed. The cracker represents the body that, the, of Jesus that was broken for us on the cross the, um, so that we might be forgiven of our sins. If you aren't a Christian this morning, this um, community is not for you, but we are for you and we'd love to talk with you about it. So I encourage you just now to, re- to respond, to think through what God would have you to think on today. Check out these questions. The band will come up if you guys want to come up and I'm going to pray for us and then we'll worship through song and we will respond. God, thanks for this passage of scripture. And God, though I can't do you justice to all that you are. God, I pray that we might have a more full, accurate, big picture of all that you are, of all that you've done, of what you are doing right now, and what you have said you will do. God, remove doubt in our hearts. Let us not have confidence in ourselves. Let us anchor ourselves to the fact that you will keep us, that you will hold us steadfast and we don't have to fear what comes in the future. God, thanks for being this God. We need you and I pray that you would do work in us right now. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.